Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. In 570 AD, in a place called Mecca, a young man was born without a father who had passed away and a mother who would soon pass after that and then be raised by his grandfather and later his uncle. That young boy, who would grow up to be a man, was none other than Muhammad. And he would fall into the arms of a successful businesswoman by the name of Khadijah. And then in 610, while he was up in the caves vexing over much of the paganism and idolatry that was around him, he was met by an angel. And this night would be a night that all Muslims around the world recognize as what is called the night of power. And in that cave in Mecca, he was squeezed by the angel Jibreel on three separate occasions, each time telling him to recite. And now at the very end, on the third time, he did, in fact, begin to recite. And Muhammad actually went home after that, thinking that he was being possessed or oppressed by some demon, only to have Khadijah convince him otherwise. Then, over the course of the next 22 years, from 610 to 632, Muhammad would have these encounters where Jibreel would tell him specifically what he was to recite. Until his death in 632, somewhat abruptly, he would recite, and that was what would become eventually known as the Quran. How? Because after Muhammad in 632, you would have what would be known as the rightly guided caliphs. The first one being Abu Bakr and after a battle at Yamama in which a number of the best reciters of the Quran passed away, Abu Bakr would commission the secretary of Muhammad, Zayd ibn Tabit, to write down much of the oral Quran. Not only would Abu Bakr, but the second caliph as well, Umar, would commission him. And Umar's daughter, Hafsa, a widow of Muhammad, would actually keep the written text that was written down by a reluctant Zayd ibn Tabit, and she would keep that for a number of years until the third caliph, Uthman, would take that text and formulate it into the singular text of the Quran and burn up all the copies according to Sahih al-Bukhari. Now that is the standard Muslim narrative of the transmission of the Quran. And here with us today, what you are going to hear is not only is that true, but as Bernie Power, Dr. Bernie Power, is going to go over right here, a little more, I guess you can say, formal introduction into your understanding of the transmission of the Quran. The standard view is that um, Muhammad was the sole recipient of the Quran. So the revelations came to him uh, through the prophet, uh, through the angel Gabriel, and he uh, was the recipient of them. He 
maintain them and then he would recite them to other people and these people would either memorize them or sometimes they would write bits of them down and so when muhammad died in 632 according to the islamic uh, timetable the the content of the quran was memorized by many people and they had some written records and they tried to put those together so when um, uh, uh, there was an important battle called the battle of yamana where many of the muslims were killed, including those who had memorized the Quran. They're called Hufaz, uh, which is memorizers. And so they decided they needed to write down some of the, um, get down a proper written record. And there was one that was put together um, and that was um, uh, held, uh, placed uh, with, with one of um, Muhammad's wives, um, Hafsa, and she had this copy. This was in the, uh, the time of the first Caliph uh, Abu Bakr. But as time went on, people also had different versions. And uh, so Muhammad talked about some very important reciters. So guys like Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Abu Musa. And he said, if you want to learn the Quran, learn from these guys. And these guys were reciting the Quran, but that they would recite it in different ways. And they had different understandings of what the Quran would be. And this came to a head uh, at the time when the Muslims, during the time of Uthman, the third caliph, and the Muslims were invading um, Armenia. And uh, the troops got there and they said, um, the people who follow Abdullah ibn Masud's recitation go over to that side of the, of the mosque, the meeting place, and those who follow Abu Musa's go to the other side. And so they were both, both groups were reciting the Quran together, but they were different versions. And there was a man there named uh, Hudayfa, and he said, this is no good. We can't have different versions of the Quran going around. We need to have only one version. So he goes back to the caliph and he says, you need to stop this. We can't differ about the book the same as he said, the, the same as the Christians and the Jews differ about their book. And so um, Uthman said, all right, we will uh, authorize just one Quran version. And he gets a one man, a committee of four people, including Zaid bin Thabit, who was the, the man who collected the first version. And he said, I want you for to agree on a copy of, on a version of the Quran. And so they collected all of the different um, written versions that they had, and they brought in all the, the people and they asked people, if you remember a verse of the Quran, come and tell us. And each verse needed to have two people saying, yes, I remember hearing Muhammad recite that. And so they put together one version, which is called now the Uthmanic recension or um, revision. And then Uthman ordered that all of the other copies be burnt. And this one, there was made um, uh, multiple copies of it. And then this became the standard kind of Quran, um, according to the Muslim view. And that has never changed uh, throughout um, 1400 years. So the Islamic view concerning the transmission of the Quran, we wanted to make sure it was clearly stated by what the Islamic sources say concerning the transmission of the text. And this is very, very important because when it comes to Muslim and Christian dialogue and debate, a lot of times it is centered around specifically the transmission of the text of our scripture, one being that of Christians being the New Testament specifically, but also the Old Testament and then for Muslims, the Quran. And so we want to look at specifically what Christians 
and Muslims believe concerning these texts and why understanding the transmission of them is really important in light of what you believe theologically about your book. So, let's hear what Jay Smith says that all Muslims believe concerning the Quran. Every Muslim is told three things about the Quran. It's eternal, it's never changed, and God protects it. Those three things. And every Muslim knows not one word, not one letter. Now remember, Yasser Qadi has been saying this for years. Shabir Ali has been saying this for years. They have always said it. Every Muslim you meet says this, except if they're liberal. But I'm talking about 99.9% of all Muslims. Always agree with those three things. And if you are taught this from your yehi to a grasshopper, you assume that this is what makes the Quran special. And this is not just the opinion of Jay Smith. But also, this is exactly what the Quran says. In fact, in Surah 85, 22, it says, In fact, this is a glorious Quran recorded in a preserved tablet. It is the view of Muslims that the Quran is on a tablet in heaven and is eternal. So, with that weight behind it, let's take a look at what other Muslims, including Yusuf Ali, who translated these Qurans in front of me, and what his view was concerning the Quran. Islam has, one, a comprehensive and unchanged scripture. It is exactly the same, word to word, letter to letter. Right now, as we speak, not translations in English, right? There's, what, 106, I believe, somewhere around there, English translations of the Quran, but... When it comes to the the Quran, these are Arabic Qurans, you know, with the names like Warsh, right, and and Hafs, and so forth. And these are versions of the Quran being read in places like uh, in Africa and so forth that are different than what they're reading. But are there any differences? Because I know, like Dr. Shabir Ali, who's a very famous, probably the most famous Muslim apologist uh, in this era, and you know, he would say, you know, well, there's no doctrinal differences. But, I mean, is that really a good apologetic for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, the, the problem is that the claim was there has never been a uh, any change at all. Um, I'll just give you a, a couple of quotes. This is one here. Yeah, okay, yeah. He says, so well has been uh, preserved both in uh, the Arabic text we have today is identical to the text that was revealed to the prophet. Not even a single letter has yielded to corruption during the passage of the centuries. And of course, Yusuf Ali is an important translator of the um, uh, of the Quran. His version was the one that was uh, the standard one. Another one, um, El Hajj Ajijola. He says. It's so fully preserved and not a jot or tittle has been left out, Uh quoting the words of Jesus. Um, So for Muslims, I would say, yeah, the issue is we we haven't got any any variation at all. As Christians, we've always accepted that there's um, multiple manuscripts and we've got a wealth of manuscripts and we recognize that the the process is not perfect and you have some uh, transmission variations. But Muslims have been unwilling to even countenance that but now it's being forced upon them and so um, you know Shabir Ali is now coming out with these statements well okay so it doesn't really matter um, here he is here talking about that um, that there are some variations because it doesn't affect our doctrine um, but that's not the claim yeah I think that's one of the more important things hopefully that we're beginning to understand 
is the fact that the Quran claims that eternally it has been written on a tablet in heaven. Therefore, if there are any differences between the Quran, we have to make sure we understand that is a big, big problem. So when you see that Muslims all over the world, including in Africa and so forth, that they are reading different versions, and they are not just simply, oh, this pronunciation and so forth. And sadly, as you had seen in the very beginning of this, Dr. Yasser Khadi, where he was explaining over and over again how he doesn't like to talk about this in public. It's a private thing that he doesn't want even people that aren't a student of knowledge even looking at this. The fact is that even he tried to look at this and say, well, you know what? It's kind of like the difference between someone in England versus someone in America looking for water in the garage or water in the garage. And he tried to use that as a pronunciation difference for a lot of these discrepancies that we're going to talk about. The only problem with that is in the very next breath, he admitted that's not the only differences between these Qurans. And this is going to grow more and more important for what we're trying to understand here, because the fact is, is that the Quran itself puts itself at such a high pedestal that there can't be any other versions that other faithful Muslims are actually reading. That is very, very important. And what we want to talk about here, and we're going to have Dr. David Wood explain to you what happened in not only the Islamic apologetic circles, but also in the Christian circles, what happened when Dr. Sheikh Yasser Qadi went on Muhammad Hijab's YouTube channel, and what happened and what created what we have called the holes in the narrative. Yeah, so those were actually Yasser Qadi's words. He's the one who said there are, there are holes in the narrative. Um, and so Sheikh Yasser Qadi, one of the uh, most prominent Muslim scholars in, in recent history, and he's talking to Muhammad Hijab, who's more of a uh, popular Muslim apologist on, online. And what's happened over the, past, um, in, over the past few years is that some myths have been breaking down. And it's, it's, it's awesome to watch because Muslim scholars have been telling Muslims for a long time that the Quran has been perfectly and miraculously preserved right down to the letter from the time of Muhammad. Uh, Yasser Qadi had a slightly modified position. He said it's been perfectly preserved from the time of the Caliph Uthman. So he's been saying perfect preservation, no difference anywhere in any Muslim uh, manuscript in the entire world. Now, those of us who study Islam know that's total nonsense. It's according to their own sources, that's total nonsense. Their sources talk about entire chapters coming up missing because Muslims were too lazy to recite them. Uh, it talks about large passages coming up missing because the only people who had those passages memorized died in battle. It talks about verses being eaten by a sheep, all kinds of things, right? And then you have the people who actually look at the manuscripts and they can show all kinds of differences in the manuscripts. Uh, corrections, uh, erase, erasings and things like that. Um, and then you have, in addition to all of that, you have different, different versions of the Quran that are used in different parts of the world today. So you can go to a place in Africa that will use a different Arabic text of the Quran from what they use. And this isn't, this isn't, a, um, you know, pronunciation differences or something like that. They have different Arabic words. 
And so what happened is you've got this myth that's been that's been spread for a long time. And Muslims believe it because their leaders are telling them perfect preservation right down to the letter. We've all been saying that's complete nonsense for years. But who are you going to listen to as a Muslim? The, the Christians who are criticizing your, your views or your, your leaders who are defending your views? Well, eventually people like Jay Smith and Hatun Tash started showing up to Speaker's Corner in London where Muhammad Hijab uh, does, does his dawah started showing up with different Qurans in Arabic, right? And putting them side by side and saying, look, this is different from this. This is a different word. And they're asking the Arabic speaker, Arabic speaking Muslims right there. What does that say? What does that say? And so this led to a kind of uh, crisis for a lot of people. And Muhammad Hijab still really believed perfect preservation right down to the letter, except for maybe some differences in dialect or pronunciation or something like that. It's got to be something simple, some easy explanation. And so he had Sheikh Yasser Qadi on his live stream and Sheikh Yasser Qadi, who, you know, 10 years ago was saying perfect preservation right down to the letter from the time of Uthman, realizes, hey, he's in a position now where this is becoming common knowledge among Western scholars and he works in those circles as well. And Qadi basically said, I don't want to talk about this. He repeated, I do not want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. We should not be having this conversation in public because he was put in a position. If he says, um, oh, yeah, perfect preservation right down to the letter, he would be laughed out of academia by people who know, you know, the reality of the situation. But if he says, okay, we've been wrong all these years, there've been all kinds of changes and so on, then he's going to destroy the faith and confidence of Muslims. And so he really made it known that he didn't want to talk about this, but Hijab, who's convinced that there must be some simple explanation, kept pushing. And Yasser Qadi said, look, I'm, I'm going to say, basically, um, the arguments we use and the explanations we come up with for these different versions of the Quran and so on, those work among Muslims, but as soon as we go to Western academics, they shoot those explanations full of holes. And we know they're right because they're quoting our own sources to us. And so he said, all I'm going to say is that the standard narrative has holes in it. That's all I'm going to say. Right? And so he basically, I mean, it's a simple question. Is there one Quran? And he's, nope, there's holes in the narrative and the things we say don't, don't, would be destroyed by Western, Western academics. And so he basically told the entire community what we've been telling, what Muslims and Muslim apologists, Muslim scholars have been telling you for years. It was all complete nonsense, but I'm not going to solve this for you. And so there was an immediate backlash. We, we thought it was awesome. I mean, we, right then we had a lot of respect for Yasser Khadi. He was like, wait, he, he, he didn't lie. He did not, he did not lie there. So that is, that is awesome. We had a lot of respect for him, uh, right there. But, um, because of the backlash from Muslims, Muhammad Hijab deleted that portion of the discussion. Then Yasser Qadi had it, had it posted on his channel. He very quickly had to delete the, the comment section. He had to turn off comments because Muslims were saying, you're destroying my faith in the Quran. Then, uh, Hijab took down the entire discussion and Yasser Qadi took down the entire discussion. But then Yasser Qadi started, started uh, sending copyright complaints to YouTube to anyone who had quoted parts of it. Parts of that interview started sending, and he know he's an academic, he knows you're allowed to quote other people's stuff for purposes of uh, criticism and education and so on. So he knows you're allowed to use clips of his material and so on, but he started sending false copyright complaints. So the little bit of respect that we, we had for him very quickly, that all shattered because he was so embarrassed and he's been so traumatized by this that, uh, you know, he's filing false copyright complaints to get this taken down because he's so embarrassed and notice, notice the situation there. It's all because he spoke the truth on the, the problem. One time, one time, one interview, one Muslim scholar says, 
guys, we need to be honest. There's some holes in what we're saying here. And backlash, silence him. His career's messed up forever. That's the response if you actually tell Muslims the truth about the Quran. And so that tells you how, what a sensitive issue it is. And it tells you, if you really want to shake the confidence of Muslims, be good to learn some of that material and show them that, that, that there are holes in the narrative. And maybe you're thinking right now, oh, this is very easy to answer as a Muslim. I, I can figure this out. There's no problem here. I can just get out of these interpretations and, and so forth. But the fact is, is some of the best scholars that you have here in the West, like Dr. Sheikh Yasser Qadi, have admitted that when it came to intellectually looking at these things, he could not help but have a crisis when it came to the very knowledge that he was learning while at Yale University. And this isn't new. This is from the time of the Sahaba. This is not a joke, brothers and sisters. The issue of Ahruf and Qiraat caused confusion to somebody whom the Prophet said, if you want to listen to the Quran directly, listen to Ubay. Ubay is not some even average Sahabi. He is the Qari of the Quran. He is the master. He is who he is. And he goes, fi nafsi shak. Like, What is all of this stuff? Um, again, this is the you, you have asked me some very honest question. It's the first time I'm saying these things. Many people are aware who listen to my lectures that I've mentioned the crises that happened to me at Yale. This was the issue. That the issue of ahruf and preservation and qiraat and relationships between them, these are very, very difficult issues. And the most advanced of our scholars, they're not quite fully certain how to solve all of the unanswered questions in there. Think about that. Maybe you're someone who's a layman as a Muslim, and the most advanced scholars in those fields do not know how to answer these questions when it came to the fact that the transmission of the text of the Quran doesn't line up. That entire narrative that we gave at the beginning, both myself and Dr. Bernie Power, the entire narrative, when we look at the historical documentation and the facts, it is simply not there. And it looks like this entire argument, as you will hear, really has no close on. Talk about, and remember about halfway through the interview, he did say, you know, you in the East, you have holes in your narrative. We in the West, they've come leap years beyond in the last hundred years. And you have holes in your narrative. There are holes in the narrative. And he says, they're looking at us like an emperor with no clothes. That's Dr. Sheikh Yasser Qadi's words, not just Jay Smith, but you can hear those when it comes to the very fact that this narrative you've been fed for so long simply doesn't have much to put on when it comes to clothing. The crisis was very simple. Traditional understandings of Ahruf and Qiraat cannot answer some of these pressing questions that are now being poked by our uh, people outside of, by our academics, not our, by their academics outside of the faith tradition. You see, in a Muslim environment, there's always some respect that we have for the Quran. We should. In a Muslim environment, we'll press a little bit and then we'll say, okay, khalas, sami'na wa ta'na. And that's great, alhamdulillah. When you go to academia, they don't have that red line. And they're going to just, you know, the, 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 the famous story of the emperor with no clothes. They're going to just point out, no, that doesn't make any sense. Well, that's not true. And this and that. And they'll bring issues, which I'm not going to mention explicitly, that you know are true because they're in your own books. They're not inventing anything new. Notice what he said there. 
They'll bring issues that he is not even willing to bring up publicly. Think about that. When we talk about it specifically, what you're not being told by the top scholar, by the imams, by the sheikhs, you are not being told the reality of the fact that they don't have the information that they think they have. And the narrative that you've been given that the Quran has been perfectly preserved, that it's been written on a tablet in heaven and delivered complete eternally, you are not getting, you are being sold a bill of goods and it is simply not true. And what's going to take place here? You can hear Dr. Yasser Qadi talking specifically about the different types of people. And what I believe he does is makes three different types of people that are, I guess, what it looks like when they come to examine this issue. This is a topic that when you're the beginning, beginning student of knowledge, you're like, what is all of this going on here? When you go a little bit more, you learn to simply memorize what your teachers say and regurgitate it out. And you don't fully comprehend. When you do a deep dive is when things get very, very awkward and difficult. So listen to these three groups of people and see where you may fall in if you're a practicing Muslim. The first group of people just have no idea what's going on. The second one, just parrot and regurgitate whatever you're told. And the third one needs to do this deep dive, but by his own admission, he himself and other scholars, Islamic scholars, are having a very tough time and have not found answers to the holes in the Islamic narrative when it comes to the preservation and transmission of the Quran. The very thing that if you are a Christian sharing the gospel with a Muslim, the very thing that will typically be brought up are the different versions of the Bible, not understanding the difference between transmission and translation often, And they are bringing up this very thing that even their best scholars have no answer for when it comes to the Quran. So what is it that they go into? What do they do? What does somebody do when they come to this place? How about what does the best scholar do, one of the best scholars out here in the West, one of the best Islamic scholars, what does he do when he has this problem and can't answer it for Muhammad Ijab. This is the mantra they all yeah, say. There it is. Yeah. I am absolutely I am absolutely sure of the preservation of the Quran. I am absolutely sure that there is not one dot, one not one word, or I'm absolutely sure that it has been guarded. He went through this whole litany of things that he was sure of, which he says every time whenever this question comes up. And he's been saying it for 25 years. Yeah. Because he has to believe it. And this is the dance that you hear. This is the dance that I've heard for years. Whenever you get to a a question that you can't answer, you just go into this mantra, as we say in India. This mantra, this memorized mantra. You don't ever question it. And here was the difficulty that he was having, because then what did Muhammad Hijab do next? He put his hand out. And he said, what did he say about this hand? The bank piece of paper. What are you going to write on there? Which one is it? Is this Kaloon? Is this Hafs? Is this Warsh? Is this Kasai? He could have asked all that number of 30. And his, initially, what, did, what was his reaction? This is where he reacted. Don't ask me this question. Please don't ask me this question. Be, ask me after the interview. Become my student. We'll do a deep dive. That's the third level that you're talking about. 
The third level then, when you become my student and you pay me the money, I'll do a <laughs> deep dive and I'll tell you what I'm just telling you right now. Because what was the deep dive that he finally concluded on? Because he did do the he did answer the question at the very end. At the very end of the interview, after this had all gone by, Muhammad Hijab said, this should be easy. It should be a simple yes or no. And finally, he said it a second time. I'm going to put that piece of paper, that mushaf. He called it a mushaf, which means book. Okay. It means a codex. I'm going to say, this is a blank codex. What are you going to write? Which is it? In other words, what he was saying is, which is the one that's in heaven? Which is the one that was revealed to Muhammad? Which is the one that was canonized and put together by Uthman? Which is the one that has no difference, no dots, no, oh, not dots, no letter, no word difference? Which is the one? And finally, you could see he, Yasser Qadi was exasperated. He says, okay, okay, I give up. They're all the Quran. If you believe that every single version, we're talking at least 30 different versions with thousands of discrepancies, and then say that they are all the Quran, they are all the version that is written on a tablet in heaven, that is a problem. And that is the reason for the mantra. And that is the reason for the red line that Yasser Qadi refers to concerning getting to a place where you'll never ask this question out of reverence. But the fact is, it's not out of reverence, it's out of fear for what the truth holds. And what the truth holds is that there are simply no answers to be given. There are none there that will give you an answer that will back up what you believe concerning the preservation and transmission of the Quran according to the Quran itself and the Muslim scholars. And I want you to hear Yasser Qadi one more time explaining why you, you, if you're a Muslim watching this, you should not have any confidence in the narrative you've been getting taught in this Islamic cover-up. It's very clear to you and to every single very advanced student and specialist that the standard narrative has holes in it. That's what I'm going to say. The standard narrative does not answer some very pressing questions. These are now well-known within the Western Academy uh, that they're bringing forth issues. Their level of now knowledge is leaps and bounds above what it used to be, you know, 100 years ago. What is happening in the last few years is not me anymore. It's the Western academics. These, these problems are now becoming mainstream. And by and large, our ulama in the Eastern world are not aware, by and large, of what's going on in the Western side of things. And they're not answering those questions in a manner that it needs to be answered. And they're not answering those questions because they do not have the answer. And when Dr. Sheikh Yasser Qadi explained that all of the versions of the Quran, and he explained that every single one of those, with all the discrepancies and everything that's in them, all the differences, that they are all the eternal tablet written in heaven, when he described that, he doesn't realize precisely what he just admitted. But when he said they are all the Quran, I just started clapping. And I just started laughing. And I just said, you have no idea what you have just admitted. Because Yasser Qadi does not know what we know. He does not know that just with 23 of these 30 Qurans, we have found 93,000 differences. 93,000. 
Now, folks, can you see why that destroys any notion that this could be eternal? That destroys any notion that this could have been sent to a man named Muhammad over a 22 period. That destroys any notion that this could have been canonized and written down in, a, in its final form at the time of Uthman in 652. This destroys all of that. Proving that this is man-made as you can get. As man-made as you can get. And don't just listen to our opinion. I want you to see what Dr. Bernie Power has done on his research concerning the different discrepancies in the different versions of not an English translation of the Quran, but of the Arabic Quran itself. Yeah, you can see from that slide there, by 650 AD, so this is only 20 years after Muhammad died, the there were different versions of the Quran that were circulating. And um, uh, so <clears throat> Muhammad said to his people, when you want to learn the Quran, learn from these people. And he gave a couple of names. And these are some of the names. So you've got uh, Ubay ibn Kab, who had a version up in Damascus uh, with 115 chapters, Abdullah ibn Masud in Kufa with 111, Abu Musa al-Ashri in Basra with 116, and Zaid bin Thabit in Medina with 114 chapters. And so they couldn't even agree which chapters would go in there. Abdullah ibn Masud, for example, said, uh, the first chapter, um, Surah Al-Fatiha, and the last two, Surahs 113 and 114, don't belong in the Quran. They're Muhammad's prayers. They, they were never revealed to him by Allah. Others added in other chapters or combined them together. So they had variant versions of the, the numbers of chapters that were there. And then, um, past him. Um, and then Muslims say, yes, but the Quran, when it came to Muhammad, he recited it to a whole variety of people. And you can see in this second column here, um, so people like Umar and Zaid bin Thabit and Ibn, Ibn Masud and Uthman. And then they recited it to other people who then recited it to other people. So you can see the second last column. Um, and these are called the Qira'at the recitals, uh, recitals. Uh, um, on, the, on the far right, the list there of all the riwayat is um, different versions of the Quran where they've got the dots put in different places. Now, I'll show you what this means um, because I've got uh, an example here. So what this means is that when you uh, take out a copy of the Quran, then you can find and you compare that with different versions. And I've got my list here of uh, different different Qurans. Um, I've got a list of 27 of them here. Um, oh, wow. You, uh, you can open up the Quran and you can have a look at uh, how the different, the different versions vary. And I've done this with a whole group of uh, um, uh, Arabic-speaking friends, and I've done some myself. So we would look at the, um, the, the different letters and compare that with another text, which has got that, and we can see the variations. Now, I'm only looking at consonantal variations here, and this is from just one version. Those are all the variations. There's typically 100 to 150 variations between any two copies of the Quran. Yeah. Um, so to say that there's only one Quran isn't, uh, isn't true um, because we know that there, we can see that there are, there are multiple copies. So there's my, my collection of uh, different versions of the Quran. Every single one of them is different. Um, to wow. say that there's only one Quran is, is not true. Um, and in fact, it's never been true. Um, and by the uh, way, these, uh, these sorry, are easy. To ask a quick question, because yeah, sure, yeah. I think maybe from a Western mindset, from from us, maybe 
it's not really a big deal. Who, you know, so what? You know, we have the Holman Study Bible, we have the NASB, we, you know, and and so forth, and and we see all this. But for a Muslim, when they see those twenty-seven Qurans, and you're saying there's absolutely differences in them, why is this such a big deal for a Muslim? Where as a Christian, that seemingly isn't that big of a deal. Okay, yeah. So two things that are important to recognize. One is when uh, Muslims talk about the Bible being changed, they're often talking about English translations. And so they'll say, well, your King James Version is different from your, uh, you know, NIV. Therefore, your Bible has been changed. We'll say, well, actually, those are um, translations. You need to go back to the original text. And the problem for Muslims is this is the original text. So it's the Arabic text. It's not as though it's an Urdu version or an English uh, translation, but the actual Arabic text. And the claim from Muslims is that Muhammad received these words in Arabic from Gabriel, and this is exactly what Muhammad passed on. And you see the importance here. And also we want to make some distinctions as well, because what we've been looking at here, kind of in a timely fashion, is the fact that the evidence doesn't line up with the narrative. And there has been seemingly a cover-up when you hear that language from Dr. Yasser Qadi when it comes to the nature of, guess what? The narrative you've been giving has holes in it, and we really don't have answers to give it. And there's a red line that you don't go past when it comes to questioning these things. And the biggest difference when it comes to Islamic studies versus Christian studies and the manuscripts thereof is the fact that Christians for years and years and years have dived deep into the text of the New Testament, have dived deep into the manuscripts and found over and over again this beautiful thing, something that you do not have in Islam. The fact is, is that we don't have to put our faith in one person. I have to quote from Sahih al-Bukhari, 661-510. Uthman sent to every Muslim province one copy of what they had copied and ordered that all other Quranic materials, whether written in fragmentary manuscripts or whole copies, be burnt. You see, when you put your faith In Uthman, because ultimately, if that's the narrative, even if I grant you your own narrative, you have to trust that Uthman is the one who got it right over anyone else. But what is beautiful when it comes to the Christian faith is that we get thousands and thousands of manuscripts so that when there is a discrepancy, we get to look at the other thousands of manuscripts to make sure what is being said is what was being conveyed by the apostles and ultimately by the Holy Spirit who wrote the Gospels, who wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament. And what's beautiful is for those in the Christian faith is that I don't have to put my faith that hopefully everyone remembered, at least the ones that weren't the best reciters who died at your mama. I hope that, oh, hopefully they remembered this and wrote it on rocks and sticks and so forth. I know that I can trust the God of the, of the Bible over and over again because he appointed that his church would receive these texts. And what we have in the Christian faith is known as a 
self-authenticating canon of Scripture. What that means is, is that the Bible itself, by its nature, self-authenticates. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we are told that every Scripture, every graphe in the Greek, every graphe that we have, every Scripture is God-breathed. By its nature, it's been breathed out by God himself. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter, the companions of Jesus Christ himself, wrote that when it comes to the scriptures, that they aren't the interpretation of man, that men are not the ones that are ultimately behind it, but that God himself used men of God to write the scriptures. And he says that, guess what? The words that we have in the Bible, the words that we have in those scriptures are more sure than God speaking from the clouds to us. And we get to have that in the scriptures. And one of the best things, too, about God is that even in his nature, the Bible tells us that he showed that he was a different God from the gods of the nations, from the idolatry that was going on, because he was the only one who could tell the end from the beginning. And specifically, he would talk about these prophecies, whether it's King Cyrus coming about, but specifically the ones that I want to deal with happen in Daniel, the ninth chapter, and Isaiah 52 and 53, both of which written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And it authenticated, God authenticated himself as the one true God by proving he's the only one who can tell the end from the beginning. Because he prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 quite clearly that the Messiah, the one, not just the one anointed, but the Messiah would put an end to sin, that he would die, and he would have to die, guess when? Before the temple was destroyed. So Daniel prophesies in Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah would be killed to put an end to sin. That's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross, put an end to sin, and now gives us victory for those who know Christ. And it was prophesied before the temple was rebuilt, it was prophesied that that temple would be destroyed, something Jesus also prophesied that no stone would be unturned in that temple, that it would be destroyed. The stamp of approval of these words of God came alongside the very way that God described in Isaiah chapter 46 that he would show he is different than all these false gods because he is the only one who can tell the end from the beginning. And we get that when Jesus prophesies of his own death over and over. We get that when Jesus prophesies of the temple being torn down. We get that when Jesus prophesies over and over again what it will look like in the end times in the book of Revelation. We get that when his apostles prophesy in letters like 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 4, and so forth. Over and over again, when we have the word of God, it is alongside the prophetic, something that the Quran cannot say. It cannot say, and sadly, when it comes to reading the Quran, something that now every Ramadan I have gone through the Quran, uh, hopefully as best I can in the best chronological order I could find online, because it's not written in chronological order, and you guys know that if you are a Muslim. And the fact is, is that a lot of it doesn't make sense or ever tell you who it's talking about. 
It gives you no indication, a lot of different chapters. It only has one full story that it starts and finishes. It has a totally different narrative concerning the person of Jesus Christ, not only calling him Isa, which is fine if you had a different name for him. I'm sure I, you know, he obviously didn't go by Jesus and so forth. But the fact is, is the person of Jesus is clearly written out in four biographies over and over again, over 600 years before Muhammad ever existed. And guess what? We read about a person in Jesus, not simply an argument, which is what you see when you read of this Isa in the chapters of the Quran. You do not see a person who dies for the sins of the world, somebody who prophesied over and over again that he would die. You do not see a person in Jesus Christ who is loving. You see anecdotal statements of what he did, many of which were not found in Scripture, not in the actual true Bible that was written by the apostles, but actually in versions of grandeur, visions of grandeur, and false teachings from Gnostic Gospels, and it is really sad. It is not the person of Jesus Christ that we find in the Scriptures. But here's the thing. Maybe you're finding out as a Muslim right now, the Quran is man-made. It was not written by God, and this thing is man-made. What I would hate to happen is for you to think that God has not spoken, because he has. God has clearly spoken not only through his word, but through his son. You see, salvation is not a concept. Salvation is not an idea. Salvation is not a philosophy. It's not a bunch of rules to follow. Salvation is from a person. It's from knowing a person. And I'm, I, I want you to hear this. And because I don't want you to think that I just want to be here to bash the Quran. That's not the point. I want you to know the truth and the truth to set you free, and the truth is not found in the Quran, but it can be found somewhere else. And you then understand why when this debate was put up on both Muhammad Ijab and also Shadi Nasser's, I'm not Shadi Nasser, Yasser Qadi's YouTube site, within one week they had to take down the comments. Because the comments, and I was looking at those comments, they were angry, they were upset. They were saying, I am leaving Islam, and my blood is gonna be on your shoulders because of what you said. What did Yasser Qadi say? He was being honest. Yeah. He was caught because in a thousand, remember what he said, for a thousand years we have not been able to answer this question. This is the most difficult question for Muslim scholars to answer. No, it's not. They haven't even got to the manuscript material yet. That's yet to come. Wait till they get to that material, what Dan Brubaker is now coming up with. My. They have yet to realize how how difficult it is going to get for them. But can you see, for a thousand years, they have not been able to answer this question. For 25 years, Yasser Qadi hasn't answered it. And for 25 minutes, he couldn't answer it. And finally, the answer he gave absolutely destroyed everything that he believes. They're all. They're all the Quran. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. You just mix it around and you get the Quran. 93,000 differences. Oh, who cares? We know that not one word, not letter has been changed. Okay, so there's 93,000 of that. All right, we'll just not, we, we don't talk about it. Just take my class and we'll go do a deep dive and I'll try to explain to you. I can't even explain to you in 25 minutes. We haven't been able to explain this for a thousand years. How is taking this class going to make any difference? It's the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. Thank God we don't have this problem. Amen. 
Thank God we don't say the Bible is eternal. Thank God we don't say the Bible was sent down to one man. Thank God we don't say, we do say it was complete, but we don't have the originals. And thank God we never say that it has not been changed. But let me ask you another question. Is that the only word of God we have, the Bible? The only word, well, Jesus is the word of God. Okay. So, yeah. so he is the word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. John 1. Now, is Jesus Christ, as the word of God, is he eternal? Yeah. Did he come down? Yes, he did. Is he complete? Oh, yeah. Has he ever changed? No. Bingo. So the four <laughs> things that they're looking for in their Quran, we've got in Jesus Christ. The very thing they need, we've got. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Come on home, Muslims. You want an eternal word of God? We've got him. His name is Jesus Christ. You want a complete word of God? You want an unchanging word of God? You want a word of God that does come and walk and talk with you and me, a God that comes to earth and absolutely dies for you and rises again? That's the eternal word of God. That's his name is Jesus Christ. Everything they want, we've got. We need to bring him home. Amen. Come on home. Come on home. It's interesting because there was once a young man who came from great wealth. He sat and ate at his father's table and never lacked in anything. But after many years and blessings abundant, he asked for something that would tear his father's heart in two. He no longer wanted to spend his days with his father and brother, but rather wanted to cash in on his inheritance and live a life free of his care and his rules. Sadly, this event happens all the time. Young men and women leave the safety of their family's house, hoping that this newfound freedom will make them feel truly free. While it sounds good on the surface, what typically takes place is that they find themselves slaves to the bondage of alcohol, drugs, and sexual promiscuity and bring great shame to their family in the process. The young man in this tale was not free from these very entanglements. In fact, he squandered all of his inheritance on loose living. Things turned so bad for him that he had to give up his freedom and become a slave in order for him to not starve. He was forced to work in the filth of pigs and even came to the point that he wanted to fill his stomach with the food that was next to the very place that the pigs would defecate. It was only after this turbulent fall into utter ruin that he thought to himself, even my father's workers have enough to eat, and I am here dying of starvation, working for a man I do not know. He formulated a plan in which he would come to his father, prostrate himself, and ask his father's forgiveness. He would then offer himself as a servant of his father in order that he may not starve. If this story sounds familiar to you, it is probably because you might have heard it in a book that the Quran says was revealed by Allah himself in Surah 526 and 5727. It was a story told by Jesus of Nazareth and recorded in the Injil or the Gospels in Luke 15:11-32. Jesus used many different stories to help us understand what paradise is like and how God interacts with us. In this very story, Jesus used it to describe what it would look like for those who would repent and come back to their father's house after making a mess of their life. Interestingly enough, the repentant plea initially prescribed by the brother is described over and over again in the Quran and according to Surah 518 
And Surah 1992-93, he was right in believing that he will only ever be accepted as a servant and would never be accepted as a family member. One could easily understand how he could come to such a conclusion. He has done evil in his father's sight. He has squandered everything that his father had given him. And to simply be a servant shows you the graciousness and the compassion of a father who has been wronged. But how does Jesus actually end the story? How does he describe how this disobedient child will live out the rest of his days? So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has now been found. And they began to celebrate. You see, the father embraces him as his own. He doesn't merely give him a job as a servant. He celebrates the fact that he has been returned and welcomes him as his son. It is not hard to see the parallel in repentance described in the Quran and the very position that the prodigal son expected for him when he came to his father. The fact is the character of the son's father was far and above greater than what he ever expected. Jesus tells us that our Father in heaven not only wants us as a child, but in the case of the prodigal son, the Father runs to meet him. He doesn't even wait for him to get all the way home. Rather than a relationship as a servant, he offers a place for him at the table. This very right is one given to those who believe by the grace of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God. And as a child, there's one thing that every good parent would give to their child, and that is assurance, assurance that they love them, assurance that they care for them. But the fact is, is that as a practicing Muslim, you cannot have assurance. Even Muhammad himself, in Surah 46, Ayah 9, says quite clearly, that he himself is not something special and that he does not even know himself what will happen to him. (sighs) Guys, if you're being honest with yourself, if Muhammad doesn't know what will happen to him and what Allah will do to him, you can't know. You don't know what will happen when you're weighed in the balance. But the fact is, is that I can have full assurance because my father in heaven sent his son to die for me. You see, the gospel is so clear in the scriptures that Jesus Christ came and died according to the scriptures, just like it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, that it would be pierced for our transgressions, that he'd be bruised for our iniquities, that they'll think him accursed. They'll think he's accursed. And the fact is, is that every single, even the atheist believes, even the the Jew who does not believe in Christ believes that Jesus died on the cross. The fact is, is that you have to not believe that because the Quran has told you something else, something that reality is just not friends with. 
The fact is, is that when Jesus died on that cross, he died on that cross to bring reconciliation because when he died on that cross and cried out these words to tell us die, he was saying paid in full. You see, that was an accounting term that literally describes you having your debt paid. And the fact is that every single time you've sinned in thought or in deed, you have accrued a debt with God. And so that debt needs to be paid and Jesus Christ paid it all. That's why we sing that song, that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Because the fact is, is that when he Tetelus died, when he paid it in full, he made sure that I knew if I looked to him, I knew that if I trust in him, I can have assurance of my salvation. In fact, the Gospel of John, who was written by a companion of Jesus, says that he wrote those very words that we may believe and have life in his name. You can have life in his name by believing in Jesus. And then he wrote what was called 1 John chapter 5. He said he was an eyewitness. He said he heard, he saw, he touched, he felt, he actually saw the risen Jesus. He saw Jesus Christ. And he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that why he writes that letter, that you may know you have eternal life. If you want to have assurance of salvation, you want to have assurance of who your father is, not that you are just some slave or servant, but that you are a child of the Most High God, there is only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ himself. I pray that you will turn and you will do exactly what Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, is believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Father raised Jesus from the dead after he died. And that you would confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Yahweh. Believe in your heart, confess, and you will be saved. That is the promise. I encourage you to do that today. And I also want to encourage you guys, please, we are going to be at the Our Strong Tower Conference September 10th through the 12th. That is tomorrow, if you're watching this on the premiere, tomorrow at the Our Strong Tower Conference, where you can hear who you've already heard on this video, Jay Smith, who will be speaking, as well as Anthony Rogers, Dr. Ed Dalcor. There are a number of good speakers. This is put on by Ministry to Muslims. You can go to Ministry to, that's T-O, Muslims.com and check out the conference and you can see what they got going on because this is an awesome conference and even if you can't be there, you can actually check it out online and watch it online. And that is an absolute blessing. It's put on by Pastor George Saig. He has just a heart for the gospel for Muslims and so do we. So we're so excited to be there. We'll be doing some videos for you guys while we're there. Hope you guys can check them out. And we're just excited for what God is doing through Ministry to Muslims. And we're excited to be there at the Our Strong Tower Conference. Hopefully see you there. God bless. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.